Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to continue in our series in the book of Hebrews. And we'll be covering all of chapter 8 today. Before we look at the text, a little historical fact for you. On July 7th of this past year, sporting history was made. On July 7th, the most expensive contract in professional sports in America was signed by none other than the quarterback of the losing team of the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes. So that contract didn't, you know, win him a Super Bowl. But that contract was for 10 years and $450 million. Now, we're, we're not going to discuss the ridiculousness of a football player getting that much money to play a game. However, an interesting thing about professional sports athletes and these contracts that they get is that Patrick Mahomes and other athletes like him, when it comes to those contracts, other than saying yes or no, they, they honestly have very little to do with the actual negotiation of those contracts. Each of them because of the amount of money that they're dealing with, usually has someone called an agent, a sports agent. And it's that agent's job to be the go-between in that relationship between the athlete and the organization they play for. Now, Patrick Mahomes' agent did his job, and he got that man a really, really good deal. For our purposes today, I think it's really good that we think of, of that concept of having someone who is a go-between between two parties in a relationship, an agent or a mediator, or in our case, what we're going to read about is our great high priest, Jesus. And so as we, as we look at the text today, I want you guys to think of that, that concept of having that, that mediator, that someone who communicates between the two parties between us and God. So let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the custom, according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you have brought us here this morning. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear from your word. Father, I pray that your spirit will fill this room and give us understanding, that you would give us wisdom to discern the truths in your scripture this morning. Father, I pray that I would be behind the cross and that your words would come through me. Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in your word this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we look at this text, there is one main point that we're going to be looking at that if you don't get anything else out of what we read this morning, I want you to get this. That main point is that there is no better relationship that we can be in than the new covenant relationship with God the Father through the Son and our heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. There is no better relationship that we can be in than in the new covenant relationship with God the Father through the Son and our heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ. Now we'll see this in the text actually worked out through two main sections and two main points. The first is going to be in verses 1 through 6, and that's going to be the better ministry of the heavenly high priest. And then the second is going to be the better promises of the new covenant in the last half of the chapter. But let's look at the better ministry of our great high priest. Verse one says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Now that's a softball for a preacher. Whenever the Bible says that the point is this, we, I, I've got to pay attention to it. So what's the point? Well, it says this, we have such a high priest. Well, what kind of high priest are we talking about? Well, Pastor Nathan has been explaining to us over the past two weeks about how Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Or you could call him, if you wanted to say the really big name, the Melchizedekian high priest. But what is that? Chapter 7 does an awesome job of just summing up what it means that Jesus is this high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
In verse 26, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We have this kind of high priest. When it tells us this is the point that we have such a high priest, we have a high priest who is sinless, holy. He made one sacrifice for sins and it wasn't for his own sins because he was sinless, but it was one sacrifice for all the sins of God's children. He is a son and he is perfect. But he is also, back to our passage, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And further, he is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This is telling us that Jesus is in heaven right now. We believe that he has ascended, that he is at the right hand of God the Father, and that is where he is, and that is where he does his ministry. Now, in order for us To really understand what's going on here, what's going on is what the author is going to do. It's going to give us a comparison between Jesus's ministry as a high priest, and we're supposed to think about the ministry of the Levites, and we need to compare them, and what the author is doing is putting them both before us and and asking us who we will choose. So we need to think a little bit about the ministry of the old covenant high priest, and I think I have a slide up there of a picture. There it is. So this is the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was what God instructed Moses to build so that the people of Israel, as they were coming out of Egypt, could follow his commands and worship in this covenant, old covenant and sacrificial system. Now I'm not gonna go into too much detail because I would steal from Nathan's passage next week if I did that. But basically, just looking at this, you see that there's the tent and there's two chambers. The outer chamber is the holy place and the inner chamber is the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, that that holy of holies is where the high priest and the high priest alone would do ministry and they would do it only once per year. Now, that, that most holy place or the holy of holies was where God made his presence known on earth in a very particular way. God is everywhere. We believe that God is present all over his creation, but there is a, there is a sense in which there in the Holy of Holies, God made his presence and his, his holiness and his majesty and his power very specifically and peculiarly known. But it's interesting if we think about that, that high priest who was only allowed to go in there once per year, he wasn't even allowed to expose himself to the full glory of God. Leviticus chapter 16, starting in verse 12, says, talking of the high priest as he's about to go in to the Holy of Holies once per year, he says, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small 
and he shall bring it inside the veil and put incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So even when the high priest went in there, he couldn't go in and just go in and see everything. He had to make it really smoky and hazy in there so he wasn't exposed to the full glory of God in that place. Now that's the high priest. That's the Levitical high priest. But what does our passage say about Jesus? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He is the minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jesus is in the actual presence of God, the most holy of holies, the throne room of God most high, where the glory of God is unveiled and in its full strength and potency. We get a little bit of an image in that in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah 6 has a vision of the throne room of God and all Isaiah can do is say, woe is me. Woe is me. Now as we look further, we'll see that the tabernacle, what what the Levitical high priest served in, that was, that was just, they were serving in verse five, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. This doesn't mean that Jesus is in an actual tent or a tabernacle in heaven, but the, the tabernacle itself was to represent the presence of God the Father among his people. And so Jesus unveiled is in that, that holy of holies in heaven in the throne room in the very presence of God the Father most high. Now, as we move along in verse three, we get a little bit of a side note, although it's a very important side note, where it says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this high priest also to have something to offer. Now, the Levites and all of those high priests did bring sacrifices in. That was their job. That was their ministry. Jesus only brings one sacrifice, and it's not for himself, but it is for all the people. Again, Hebrews 7 says, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and those for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And our passage goes on to say that if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. That is just a comparison and contrasting of Jesus is not a Levite. He is not a Levitical high priest. He is not in that order of high priest. He is in this new order after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus in his earthly life actually never even went into the Holy of Holies in the temple, but he is in the Holy of Holies in heaven. Now our author, as he, as he brings all these to the front, he's asking us to compare the two you know, the, the people that the author is writing, we've said many times, they are tempted to walk away from Christ and to walk back to Judaism. So the author is, is pleading with the people and he's showing them, he's bringing before them these two high priestly systems. He's saying the Levites, these guys are sinful. They have to offer sacrifices for their own sins and for the people. And they have to make these sacrifices over and over again, year after year. They can't even be in the full presence of God when they go into the Holy of Holies. They have to put smoke and make it hazy 
So they're not exposed to the full glory of God. And they don't serve in the actual holy of holies. They serve in a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things. Those are the Levites. But Jesus, Jesus is sinless. Jesus brought a sacrifice once for all, not for his own sins, but for the sins of all of God's children. And he serves in the very throne room of heaven, the true holy of holies. And he doesn't intercede just once per year. But back in chapter 7, it shows us in verse 25 that Jesus always lives to make intercession for them, for those who draw near to God through him. Jesus doesn't just go into the throne room of heaven one time per year. Jesus lives always in the throne room to make intercession. And so the, the question for these readers of Hebrews is, who are you going to trust to stand in your place before God? Who are you going to trust to represent you to a holy God? Are you going to trust in these, these Levites, these sinful men who have to offer their own sacrifices for their own sin? Or are you going to trust in Christ, in the perfect Son who is in the true Holy of Holies and always lives to make intercession for you. You know, the question for us is the same. When, when we one day stand before God, are we going to trust ourselves? Our culture likes to tell us to trust in ourselves all the time. Make your, be your best self. Now, just, I mean, not even to get into the spiritual side of things, but if we're going to trust and, and trust in our best self and be our best self, how are you all doing on your New Year's resolutions? Some of you may be keeping up with them. I, I didn't even make any. I didn't even try. How are you all doing with your diets? Anybody just perfectly followed a diet? No. None of us follow those things. We need to trust in the in the great high priest in, in Jesus Christ to stand in our place before God. There is, we cannot do it on our own. One commentator says this, believers enjoy a high priest who sits at God's right hand and has access to God's true sanctuary, his presence in the heavens. Jesus is not in the same category as the Levitical priests. His ministry is not earthly, but heavenly. He has introduced a better ministry and a better covenant that is established on the basis of better promises. Why would the readers consider trading away what Jesus has done for them as if a ministry and tabernacle on earth could be better than a ministry and a tabernacle in heaven? And as we move on, Verse six is kind of the, the linchpin of this whole chapter when it says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now that language is a little bit uh, wonky in the ESV, but basically what he's saying is that Jesus has a better ministry than the old covenant and the covenant, the new covenant that he has a ministry of is better because it has better promises. And so we're going to look at those in just a second. But first we need to ask, what was wrong with the old covenant? What was wrong with it? Wasn't it a good covenant? 
Wasn't it a covenant that was good? It was given by God to his people so that they could know him and worship him? But there's obviously a problem. Verse seven says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there wouldn't have been no occasion to look for a second. And then for he has finds fault with them when he says. So there is an issue with that first covenant. Charles Spurgeon says this, the first covenant provided a very magnificent service, such as never will be excelled, but for all that costly, divinely arranged, impressive, yet it could not put away sin. And the evidence of this is found in the fact that after one day of atonement, they needed another atonement next year. That is the problem with this old covenant. It was, it was a good covenant. It was the law of God and it was very good. And we can see even in verse nine that God gives it to his, his nation of Israel as a, as a father instructs his child. At verse nine, when it says, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, we're supposed to get this, this picture of a, of a father leading his small child by the hand. It was a good covenant, but it had no permanent solution to sin. And Pastor Nathan addressed that as he read earlier. We see that from the beginning to the end of the nation of Israel, they were doing the same thing. They were rejecting God. They were going after idols. And they were not faithfully obeying. So the new covenant... This passage that, as we see in your Bibles, it'll look a little different just how it's typed out. It's actually a quote from Jeremiah 31 through 34. And as we look at it, we will see four different reasons why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. The first one is that there is a sure guarantee. The second is the implanted word. The third is knowing God. And the fourth is the forgiveness of sins. Now, the sure guarantee, the old covenant, if you look actually in Deuteronomy 27, it was established with conditions. If you obey, then there will be blessings. If you disobey, there will be curses. Deuteronomy 27 lays out all of those. There was conditionality to it. You have to obey and you will be blessed. But if you disobey, you will be cursed. God would be his God and, and their God and, and they would be his people, but the people had to hold up their end of the bargain. But in this quote of Isaiah, or excuse me, Jeremiah, look, look just with me. We're gonna skim through. And what I, I want you to listen to who guarantees this covenant. In verse eight, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. In verse 10, I will make, later in verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor. They shall all know me. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The one who will see this covenant through is not us. It's not you or me. It's not Paul. It's not Peter. It's not John Piper. It's not any other 
Christian hero or any other person that you can think of, it is God and God himself that will ensure this covenant. The second reason why this covenant is better is because of the implanted word. Look at verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Now, at my house, we have lots of rules. Many of them are good rules. I would hope that all of them are good rules. And most of them are, have to do with the safety of everyone involved. Now, there's one rule that we have for Ellie, and that is when she thinks she's done with her food, she is not allowed to stand up in her high chair. Now, we tell her this rule multiple times every single day. But what does Ellie do? She still stands up in her high chair. Now, whether that's because she just doesn't understand us telling her that or just she doesn't want to, I'm not sure. But for some reason, that rule has not taken root and she continually does it. Now, there's another rule in our house. And that rule for Ellie is that mommy gets the snuggles right before bed and right after she wakes up. Now, how many times do you think I need to remind Ellie of that rule? Zero. I don't have to remind her of that rule at all because that rule is deep in her bones. That rule is in her DNA. That's deep in her heart. That's, that's been instilled in her from day one that she wants to be near and close to her mom when she gets tired and a whole bunch of other times throughout the day too, but mostly when she's tired. When this text says that God will write his law on our hearts and minds, it's referring to God radically changing our DNA. It's referring to God taking out our sinful hearts and restoring a heart of flesh to us so that we know what sin is, we know what obedience is. Ezekiel describes this new covenant in chapter 36 of Ezekiel when he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the same thing that Jesus describes in John 3 when he says you must be born again. It's the same thing that John the Baptist says of Jesus, that he was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. The new covenant isn't God just throwing a whole bunch of new rules at us and telling us, hey, follow these. It's instead a radical surgery of our hearts where we are given new hearts and the Holy Spirit Jesus gives to us to live inside of us and dwell in us so that we do have his laws written on our hearts and our minds and our desires are changed. What we couldn't obey on our own, we do obey now because we have a heart that loves God and has put these things deep into our souls. The next reason why this covenant is better is knowing God. Look again at the end of verse 10. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. One of the most encouraging things that I've heard 
since coming here in October was uh, just, a, I think it was about a month ago, Nathan and I, well, Nathan was on a phone conversation with one of our members who, because of the pandemic, has been stuck at home for goodness who knows how long now. And in, I do not think I'll ever forget what I heard her say on the phone. And that was in the, in the midst of what I can only imagine is just oppressive solitude. This church member said, I'm not alone. I'm never alone. I have my Jesus with me. Wow. You know, of, of all of the benefits of the new covenant relationship that's talked about here, I think it's, it's interesting that it doesn't really explicitly talk about eternal life. That's, that's there. It's there. We believe that that is a massive benefit to the new covenant. Instead, it does mention knowing the Lord and knowing him now and knowing his presence in your life. Right now, we can look forward to eternal life, but we can look forward to knowing our Lord and creator right now. We can know the Lord and creator of the whole universe. And it doesn't matter if you have a doctorate or if you have a master's degree, if you have a high school diploma or you just finished third grade, you can still know the Lord through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you have $2 million or two pennies to your name, you can know Jesus Christ. Christ. It doesn't matter if you've been a believer for 30 years or three minutes. You can know the Lord. One, comment, one commentator says to know God is to recognize him, to trust him, and to obey him. Every believer is able to approach God in a personal and direct way with confidence because Jesus has made this possible through his high priestly work. Since intimate knowledge increases until it reaches its consummation when all of us will know fully as we are fully known. The last reason why the new covenant is better is the forgiveness of sins. Verse 12. And I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now God's mercy towards our sins and his remembering our sins no more doesn't come without a cost. And again, I'm going to go back to that verse again in chapter 7, verse 27. Jesus didn't have any need to offer sacrifices daily since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Our sins had a cost and Jesus paid it with his own life and with his own blood. I love the language of Colossians 2, 13 and 14 and it uses strong language. It says, and you who are dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Believers in this room and watching online, do you hear this? 
Do you hear what the author of Hebrews is saying? In this new covenant, I will be merciful to your iniquities. I will remember your sins no more. I'm going to quote Spurgeon again. Suppose that you are under a sense of sin. Something has revived in you a recollection of past guilt, or it may be that you have sadly stumbled this very day. And Satan whispers, you will surely be destroyed, for you have sinned. Now go to the great father and open this page, putting your finger on that 12th verse and say, Lord, in infinite, boundless, inconceivable mercy, you have entered into covenant with me, a poor sinner. Seeing I believe in the name of Jesus, and now I ask you, have respect unto your covenant. You have said, I will be merciful toward their wrongdoings. Oh God, be merciful to mine. I will not remember their sins any longer. Lord, remember no more my sins. Forget forever my iniquity. That is the way to use the covenant. When under a sense of sin, run to that clause which meets your case. Unbelievers in the room or watching online, you have to hear the same thing. There is no better thing than this new covenant relationship with God through Jesus. But you are a sinner, unbeliever. And on your own, you cannot come before the holy God and creator of this universe. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Unbeliever, one day you will be before a holy God and you will be held accountable to him. And the one thing that we unbelievers do now to try and get out of what of being accused of, we open our mouths and we start trying to blame everybody else. The Bible says you will not be able to do that. Your mouth will be stopped. You will have no defense for yourself. And if you are on your own in that day, you will be cast away from the presence of God to endure his just wrath for all of eternity. But, dear sinner, dear unbeliever, there is hope for you right now. You may call upon the great high priest who is in heaven, the great mediator Jesus Christ, He has offered a sacrifice, his own body and blood to cover your sin. When you respond to him in faith and repentance, put your hope in him and the great mediator of this great covenant will write the laws of the Father on your heart. He will put his Holy Spirit within you and you will know him and he will be merciful to you and he will forgive your sin. Our passage closes with verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, Pastor Nathan has said this many times, and I agree with him. I don't think any of us are in any real danger of going back to Old Testament and Old Covenant Judaism. I don't think we're in danger of abandoning Christ for that. 
There are plenty of of comforts and worldly pleasures and desires and other things that battle against your souls every day to try and tempt you away from clinging to the great high priest, Jesus Christ. This passage says that all those things will pass away. They'll all fade. Worldly pleasures, they'll fade. Comforts will pass away. But the new covenant relationship with God through our Lord and Savior and great high priest Jesus Christ will last forever. Cling to Jesus. Let's pray.